This message was presented at the GYC 2010 No Turning Back Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, let's um, let's get started here, and we'll uh, start with a word of prayer. If we could all bow our heads. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask for your spirit to be with us here in this place. As we open your word, Lord, bring life to this beautiful message that you have given to us to give the world. And Lord, I pray that uh, you send a mighty host of angels to camp around uh, this entire conference. And may each person here be richly blessed and see what it is, our true purpose, that you have granted us to co-labor with you in this work, Lord. And uh, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be with here. Lord, may, may you be lifted up. Hide me behind your cross. And ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this uh, last presentation we've entitled the culture creation industry because this is the actual term that the insiders view the entertainment industry as. It's not known as the entertainment industry. It's known as the culture creation industry because they know that they are creating the culture of the future. So before we get into any of that, let's start with the story of Noah. So in Matthew 24, 37, the Bible tells us that, but as in the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So if we look at this story about Noah, this is a prophetic story, is it not? Okay? We are living in a time when All the thoughts of men are evil continually. Now, Noah, I mean, this guy's amazing, isn't he? Here, uh, just nine generations after the creation of man, man was created in the image of God. Man fell to the image of a beast. And... Noah was heralding this message saying, hey, you guys, destruction is coming. And at first, maybe some people listened to Noah's message, but soon the enemy of souls uh, duped everyone into thinking, you know, this guy's crazy. He is off his rocker, building a boat on dry land. It's never rained before. Now, the Bible tells us in Genesis 6, 9 that Noah was a just man. He was perfect in his generations because Noah walked with God. Thus, Noah did according to all that God commanded him. Genesis 6, 22. So Noah was perfect, the Bible says, because he did some. He did all that 
God had commanded him. Um, it also says in uh, Genesis 7-1 there, when God told him to come into the, to the ark and bring his whole household because he, God had seen that he was righteous in his generation. So Noah was righteous and perfect is what the Bible is telling us. What if Noah didn't do all that God had said? Like take, for instance, the pitch within and the pitch without. Remember, he gave them all those instructions on how to build the ark. And I just kind of looked up these original Hebrew words, and it's kind of interesting. There was a slight difference between the pitch within and the pitch without. The Hebrew word there, kafar, I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right, and kofar, okay? Um, the pitch within, to placate or cancel, to appease, to make an atonement, to cleanse, to forgive, to be merciful, to pacify, to pardon, to put off, to make reconciliation. The pitch without is a coating, a cover, a ransom. Isn't that beautiful? So what does the pitch represent? Christ's blood. Christ's blood. So what does the ark represent? Christ, our only ark of safety, right? Isn't that the message? Get on the, get on the ark. A redemption price. I mean, can you imagine this scene? Just imagine this scene for a moment. You're standing there, you're listening to one of Noah's last messages. You don't realize it's his last message, but all of a sudden, animals start walking out from the woods in order, two by two, seven in sevens, and getting on this boat. Man, I, I can't believe not one person got on the boat after witnessing that and seeing all those. I mean, what were they thinking, right? What could these animals represent? Any ideas? Us? People? People who have been changed from the image of God into the image of a beast? Here's a, a, a clip um, of a guy who got on the ark. Oh, that sound here. So in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to accept Christ in front of everybody right now. Then I'm going to go home and snort drugs until I don't want to do them anymore. And that was my way of thinking. So I received Christ at the church. I went home, neglected my daughter, and put her in front of the TV. I remember I grabbed a $100 bill. I always used a $100 bill for some reason, pride or something. I chopped up my crystal meth, got it all smooth and powdery, and I snorted a big old line. And I held the bill, and I looked up, and I said, Jesus, if you're real like that pastor said, then you got to take these drugs from me. Come into my life. Come into my heart. And I just got quiet. I said, search me right now. Search my heart. And I stayed silent. And I said, you know I want to quit. You know I want to be a good dad for this kid. She lost her mother to drugs. And she's going to lose me if I don't quit. Amen.
there's a high when you go on stage and you see all these people like just loving your music and loving you and stuff and there's these girls and all these people going <sighs> worshiping me when you see all those people just going nuts for you it's like you know it, it puffs you up inside you're like you know I'm important that's where drugs can creep in and you know cocaine or whatever methamphetamines crept in and it all came from after drinking for me and, and my friends and uh, it seems like fun in the beginning it's a lie because it, it it turns around on you it starts to wear on your personality it starts to wear on your relationships and everything is affected by it negatively everything there was a, a few times where life seemed good my daughter Janae she came into the world and I was like it was just such a a euphoric feeling. I thought my life could just feel like that forever, you know. It was like a, it was spiritual, just, I didn't know what was happening. I just felt so much love just fill my emotions. And I thought I was going to be happy, but uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't stay sober. I didn't know how. I hit rock bottom. I had swore that I would never do methamphetamines again because I saw what it did to my child's mother. It, it just took her feelings away and made her leave her kid. I just wanted her dead. I wanted to kill her. I thought she was a scum of the earth. And, uh, you know, how could she do drugs like that and let, it, let the drugs win her like that? So I never was going to do meth again. I ended up with a everyday crippling addiction to methamphetamine and everything that I said about my ex-wife came true for me. I sunk to the lowest gutter I could ever think of. I would spend time with my kid and I would still be on it because I needed it to function. I'd get up in the morning, have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and snort meth and then take her to school or whatever. It was just, I was a junk. I started losing my mind. This guy would show up at my house with like a gun and stuff. And then I ran out in Europe, had my drug dealer just crazy. send me drugs through, through the mail. I'd be tweaked out in my hotel room watching this package come from the U.S. It was just nuts. My life just was like spinning out of control. Well, Janae had come out on, a, on one of the tours in the U.S. I just remember me. her skipping around the house just singing one of our corn songs called Adidas. All day I dream about sex. And I'm like going, what am I doing? I'm a junkie. My daughter's singing all day I dream about sex. And uh, I'm going to die. Father? My uh, real estate broker, Eric, he, uh, he said, Brian, I don't mean to be weird with you. I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but I, f I felt the scripture like jump out at me. I've never done this before, you know, so I don't really know how to do this, but I felt like this would mean something to you. It's Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I remember all tweaked out. I looked up in the dictionary, weary. I looked up burdened, and I just I pulled the scripture apart, and I was like, I'm weary and burdened and I need rest for my soul and uh, I didn't know if it was real but you know they invited me to church a couple couple weeks later and I had received Christ 
at the church. I went home, neglected my daughter, got it all smooth and powdery. Jesus, you got to take these drugs from me. Search me right now. Search my heart. Father, I felt so much fatherly love from, from heaven, and it was like, I don't condemn you, I love you, I love you, it was just love, love, and instantly that love from God came into me, it was so powerful that the next day I threw away all my drugs, and uh, I quit corn, I was like, I'm quitting corn, and I'm going to raise my kid, because my kid, like I got the love from God coming to me and then it came out of me to my kid. It changed me. My heart was changed like that. And I was like, Janaya, daddy's going to be home with you all the time. I'm quitting my career. And her face lit up and she's like, for me? You know, she felt so special. And uh, God used her to save me, to save her life later on. My dream came true way more than I dreamt about. I, got, I made more money, I played bigger shows, I mean, houses, cars, I tried drugs, I tried sex, I tried everything to try to get pleasure out of this life. And I thought that I could fulfill my life with all this stuff by, by having my dream come true, and it came true. But it didn't fulfill it. When Christ came in, that feeling He gives you the gift of understanding life, which is everything was created for Christ and by Him, and we we're created to be with Him. And it's the most incredible feeling because you're where you belong. And contentment is given to you in life because you don't have to look anywhere else. And you're exactly where you need to be. And the question about life is answered. I'm Brian Head Welch, and I'm second. Powerful. Because one man shared with him one little seed. That man got on the ark. Now, he's still got a, a journey to go on, right? I mean, you know, he still kind of looks like an animal. But God takes us where we're at. And we should pray for Brian. He could be a powerful force in this world right now. He's part of, I mean, he was part of one of the biggest metal bands of our time, Corn. I hope none of you know who that is, but uh, whoops. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at quite a few scriptures here. So uh, let's look these up together. Animals getting on the ark. What a scene. I think we're going to see more and more of this, right? I mean, look at who the great speakers that we all have learned so much from. Ivor Myers, David Ashrick, Nathan Renner, Walter Vyth, all these guys came out of the world, completely came out of the world. 
And do they come out of the world and they're just sitting in a pew? Right? We're all called to be that. We're all called to be Noah. That's what the Bible's telling us. But what really, what really is the Bible promising us? Look up 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. I have these on the screen for those of you who don't have your Bibles, but if you do, read it in your Bible for yourself so you, you know where these are at. I'm going I'm I'm to read it off the Bible because I don't want to be behind you guys looking it up. The Scripture says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in some of your conduct. No, all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 68. The Bible tells us here, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people to grant us that we, being delivered, skipping down to 74 there, sorry, from 68 to 74, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. What is the scripture promising us? What is the gospel promising us? Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Is there a way? Let's just move this forward just a little bit so we're not running off the side of the screen. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is that is in the world through lust. Isn't that beautiful? The Bible is telling us that God has held nothing back. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So again, what is the gospel promising us? 1 John chapter 3, 6 through 9. We're building here scripture upon scripture. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. 
He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Really? Do, do we believe this? Do we believe that we can live without sin? Is this possible? I mean, this is why God came into the world, to destroy the works of the devil. Satan is a defeated foe. You know who our struggle is with? Self. That's our biggest enemy, is self. And you hear these things, you know, I am crucified with Christ. What is, can you crucify yourself? No. This is a work that God is doing within us. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this is a work that God is doing within us, right? Here, here's one of my favorite texts, Ezekiel 36, verses 23 through 27. This is God speaking. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. You know, Satan's biggest joy is when we as Christians who call ourselves followers of Christ make excuses for our imperfections in our character. That's his, that's his biggest joy because he's accused God. God, your law is not just. You, no one can follow this. Look, everybody's from Adam all the way to now, everybody's sitting, not one perfect person. Oh yeah, okay, Jesus, you were perfect, but you were God. That doesn't prove anything. But can these people do it right here? That's the accusation. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. What a promise. What a promise. Look at what the Bible's promising us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. I'll give you a second to turn there. You know, I'm just beginning to get my head around this. When I, growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist, I was never, I never heard this message. 
I always kind of, oh, yeah, you know, you're going to, you'll, you'll, you'll sin all, probably all the way till, till Christ comes. Perfection is just a carrot that's dangling out in front of us that we, we strive for but will never achieve. Now, we may, we're not going to know. We're never going to know. The 144,000 will never know that they're part of the 144,000, right? I mean, we're living in the antitypical day of atonement. What did the Israelites do on the Day of Atonement? They were confessing their sins. They were fasting. They were going, Lord, is there anything within my character that needs to be cleansed? Afflicting their souls. Amen. Oh, did I not read that last one? Sorry. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Amen. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Brothers and sisters, Christ is waiting on his bride to make herself ready. And when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then... The end will come. And this is a work we always need to remember and be humble that this is a work that God is doing within us. God is, is sanctifying his name. He is vindicating his own name through his people. What a powerful message this is. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 6 through 18. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? That's why... We feel that God has called us to herald this warning message about the dangers of what's coming out of Hollywood and the entertainment industry, the culture creation industry, that we do not, I mean, what agreement do we have with these idols? For you are the temple of God. As God has said, I will dwell within them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. And be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The sanctuary message. The unique message that this movement's been given. The cleansing of the temple. The cleansing of our hearts. What a powerful message. What, the, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin so grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Are we truly dead to sin? Do we believe what the Bible's telling us? Do we believe it? That's the question. I, I'm, I'm speaking to myself. I'm not perfect. But this is what the Bible's promising me. Wow, if we abide in Christ, 
if we are in him and he is in us and we live his life, have his thoughts, have his feelings, what a promise, what a promise. Revelation 3, I mean, we need to look at, at our true condition. We need to understand that Understand what the remedy is. We all know we're living in the time of Laodicea, right? That with the church is lukewarm and, 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 and people are saying, oh, I'm, I'm in need of nothing. What's the counsel that Christ gives us. He says, I counsel to you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Buy? Wait a minute, I thought the gospel was free. Here the Bible says, buy? But think back on the story of Noah. What did it cost Noah? Everything. It's free, but it's going to cost you everything. Total surrender. That's what the message is. When we totally surrender our lives to God, and, and what does gold represent? What are we buying? A refined character. And gold represents faith. And faith comes by hearing the word of the Lord. And, a white, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be veiled. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. To put on the, the robe of righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. But it's not just something we put on and continue in our sin. And oh, God's just going to forgive me all the time. He is forgiving us. But there's coming a time when that close of probation is going to, the door of the ark is going to close. And it's going to be too late at that point. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Do we hear this message? Look at this beautiful quote from Ellen White. The Lord invites his people to become workers together with him in rebuilding and reshaping character according to the true standard of moral rectitude. Co-laborers. Through faith in Christ, we are to be recreated in his image. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus says, behold, I create a new thing in the earth. Apostate man is to be recovered. Fallen humanity is to be elevated Sin is to be pardoned and sinners are to be saved, that God may be eternally glorified. The treasures of wisdom, which have been hidden for ages, are to be brought forth for the enriching of the lost. Oh, what treasures of wisdom are to be opened up to, for the view of the world. Every divine resource is placed at the disposal of man. How much? Every divine resource in order that we may become a co-laborer with God. Nothing has been withheld. When God gave His only begotten Son to our world, He gave all the treasures of heaven. What power, what glory has been revealed in Jesus Christ 
The greatest display of majesty and power is given to the world through the only begotten Son of God. With this power at our command, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, why is it that God's people do not awake to their duty? Why is it that every individual does not become an example in doing the work that the time demands in first giving himself and then his talents and means and abilities for the enlightenment and salvation of a people who are in a dense darkness of pitfall and most deplorable ignorance. The Southern Work, page 31. Why is it that we are not awaking to our call? Maybe it's because everything around us, just like Scotty said, the music industry has created this atmosphere around us, and this is the message. We do what we want to do. Now here's a clip. This is from a documentary uh, entitled They Sold Their Soul for Rock and Roll. And this is about a 20-minute clip, and I trimmed it down to about seven minutes. So there's way more. I mean, this is just a little smudge across the top of the true message that's coming out of the music industry. But I can do anything that I want to. I can pursue any kind of lustful desires that I might feel. I can uh, engage in any activities that are so-called sinful activities and not really worry about any ecumenical councils making it right for me to do these things. Living for, as I've said, all of the earthly and carnal pleasures. A satanic world is a world reborn in purity, a world where uh, the instinct and the intellect will be complementary to one another rather than uh, being at odds with one another. It will be a world in which uh, we follow laws of nature instead of just the rules that man's made up to regulate his conduct. If a Christian said to you, you were just really worshipping yourself, what would you say? In a sense, they would be right. Uh, it is a form of self-worship. We feel that there is no reason why these people shouldn't just flip the coin completely over and simply call themselves what religion has called them for many, many years. Call them devil worshippers or disciples of evil or Satanists. Of course, it's very hard for a person to hang an uncomplimentary label on themselves. And for this reason, for many years, there will be people practicing Satanism as good Christians or other religions, and uh, they will in, in, instinctively pursue the very same things that we are, as they always have. And you must, uh, as a Satanist, knowing this, realizing what his human potential is, eventually, and here is one of the essential points of Satanism, attain his own Godhead in accordance with his own potential. Therefore, each man, each woman, is a god or goddess in Satanism. Big Pimper really, man, is living life to your fullest potential. I mean, like, whatever you want to do, when you want to do it, you do it, but in the grandest way possible, you know? Uh, and for a god or goddess, what's the ultimate standard for ethics, meaning, purpose, and destiny? You've got it. Whatever you feel is right. My heart is the ruler of all my being. If my heart tells me it's true, that's good enough for me. The answers to your, to your problems are in yourself and not in, a, not in a God or religion. 
Satanism is about worshiping yourself because you are responsible for your own good and evil. How would you define, what would you define being a Satanist as? Worship of themselves. You're worshiping yourself when you worship Satan. Aleister Crowley stated it this way in his infamous Book of the Law. Every man and every woman is a star or a god. And as we saw earlier, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Uh, I'm a, basically a free thinker. Whatever anybody wants to do, they can do whatever they want as long as it doesn't hurt other people. I live by myself, you know, I live by my own values and all that, morals. I set my own ways. How do you determine what those morals and values are? Well, I, don't know, I just do what's right for myself. By declaring that each person should walk in their own light, discover and then do their true will, LaVey, Manson and Crowley, along with Nietzsche and others, have simply been echoing the father of all lies, the one that goes back to the very dawn of human history. Then the serpent said to the woman, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satanism then, in its essence, is simply each person looking through his or her own eyes for meaning and direction. As our own god or goddess, we're free to do as we will. Theologically, this worldview can be reduced to a single precept found in the fourth chapter of the Book of Satan. Say unto thine own heart, I am mine own Redeemer. Or, to put it in more common terms, the, quote, triumphant strains, end quote, of a song that LaVey and his disciples viewed as one of the most satanic of the 20th century. I did it. It's no mere coincidence that this song, in its successive incarnations, revealed artists who became living metaphors for the inevitable downward spiral of any culture that embraces I-did-it-my-way theology. I did it my way, indeed. And while Elvis and Sid may represent the figurative Alpha and Omega of the rock milieu, this my way ethic has expressed itself in so many ways by so many different performers. And I want to do it my, you know, my way. I sound like Frank Sinatra. And in so many songs, interviews, and concert performances, one could easily argue that do what thou wilt defines the very soul of rock and roll.
Once a kid can click this switch in his head and say, I can do what I want to do, I'm here on this earth, there are laws, but I'm going to handle it my way, gain identity. Do anything you want to do, do what you want. Do it, boy, do what you want to do. Do what thou wilt often resonates in the words of the popular mantra, do your own and, thing. And the thing is, whatever is good for you is the best for you, you know. It's a simple thing, but people don't understand that. Doing your own thing means doing your own thing, not right. doing exactly what everybody <laughs> else is doing, but doing what suits you. Let me hear you say it's not It can provide the foundation for the ever-popular believe or trust in yourself. When I say be a soldier, I mean being true to the game, being true to yourself and believing yourself. And the satanic law can find its most perfect and enticing expression in what has become one of our culture's most popular credos. Follow or trust your heart. Trust your heart. Let faith decide to guide these lives we see. From acceptance speeches to follow our hearts to Broadway musicals. Follow my heart, but to where? To wherever your heart tells you to go. To children's videos. When you follow your heart, this flake of feel good wisdom has become the great law, the only politically correct commandment for a culture wherein truth is relative. Truth is whatever you believe is right. 
Man is good, and God is whatever you want him, her, or it to be. The truth is, there are no absolute truths. I mean, even God doesn't work that way. We're bored with the concept of right and wrong. Without some absolute standard of right and wrong, what's to keep a cute children's song? from becoming the score for man's descent into lust, murder, and anarchy. You don't mean to beat a dead horse there, but I think you can see the counterfeit to what the gospel is telling us is you're your own redeemer. Trust in your heart, just like Scotty pointed out in all the cartoons. I mean, this is something that has just saturated the entertainment industry. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28, 26. The heart of a man is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 21, 2. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of of death. Proverbs 14, 12. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. You see, the world is preaching a message to follow your heart. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Lean not upon your own understanding. Lean only upon the understanding that God has given us. What Bernays was... Before I start that clip, where... You know, when, how did this all come to be, right? I mean, this thing is training us as a culture. If, if we're talking about the culture creation industry, this culture that we see in the world today, um, we're going to look at this clip here uh, talking about, I mentioned that guy, Edward Bernays, okay? And um, uh, it's an interesting shift that took place in this country uh, um, during the, uh, you know, right shortly after the Industrial Revolution. What Bernays was doing fascinated America's corporations. They had come out of the war rich and powerful, but they had a growing worry. The system of mass production had flourished during the war, and now millions of goods were pouring off production lines. What they were frightened of was the danger of overproduction, that there would come a point when people had enough goods and would simply stop buying. Up until that point, the majority of products were still sold to the masses on the basis of need. While the rich had long been used to luxury goods, for the millions of working-class Americans, most products were still advertised as necessities. Goods like shoes, stockings, even cars, were promoted in functional terms for their durability. The aim of the advertisements was simply to show people the product's practical virtues, nothing more. What the corporations realized they had to do was transform the way the majority of Americans thought about products. One leading Wall Street banker, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers, was clear about what was necessary. We must shift America, he wrote, from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America, 
man's desires must overshadow his needs. Prior to that time, there was no American consumer. There was the American worker, and there was the American owner, and they manufactured, and they saved, and they ate what they had to, and the people shopped for what they needed. And while the very rich may have bought things they didn't need, most people did not. And Mazur envisioned a break with that where you would have things that you didn't actually need, but you wanted, as opposed to needed. And the man who would be at the center of changing that mentality for the corporations was Edward Bernays. Bernays really is the guy within the United States more than anybody else who sort of brings to the table psychological theory as something that is an essential part of how, from the corporate side, of how we are going to appeal to the masses effectively and the whole sort of merchandising establishment and sales and sales establishment is ready for Sigmund Freud. I mean they are ready for understanding what motivates the human mind. And so that there's this real openness to Bernays's techniques being used to sell products to the masses. Beginning in the early 20s, the New York banks funded the creation of chains of department stores across America. They were to be the outlets for the mass-produced goods, and Bernays' job was to produce the new type of customer. Bernays began to create many of the techniques of mass consumer persuasion that we now live with. He was employed by William Randolph Hearst to promote his new women's magazines, and Bernays glamorized them by placing articles and advertisements that linked products made by others of his clients to famous film stars like Clara Bow, who was also his client. Bernays also began the practice of product placement in the movies. And he dressed the stars at the film's premieres with clothes and jewellery from other firms he represented. He was, he claimed, the first person to tell car companies they could sell cars as symbols of male sexuality. He employed psychologists to issue reports that said products were good for you and then pretended they were independent studies. He organized fashion shows in the department stores and paid celebrities to repeat the new and essential message. You bought things not just for need, but to express your inner sense of yourself. Okay, so trained. A culture that needs to be trained to desire things rather than need them. Our desires must overshadow our needs. And is that not what has happened? in our, our day and age. I mean, we're in the, we're, what is this, the, the me, me, me culture generation now? It was Generation X, now it's dot me, I, 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 my, I, Mac, I, life. Is that better? Right? David Putman put it this way, movies are powerful, good or bad, they tinker around inside your brain, they steal up upon you in the darkness of the cinema to conform social attitudes. In short, cinema is propaganda. They know exactly what power they are wielding. These next couple clips are from some, this is a, uh, a little clip from uh, an expose on, on uh, Transformers and Armageddon, both created by the same person. And um, Movies are known as predictive programming. This is predictive programming. They, they show you a scenario. It's all in this heightened emotional state. 
and they're banking on the fact that you see enough of these that when a real situation takes place in the world, you're going to react similarly to what you've been predictively programmed uh, to react. The mega-hit movie, Transformers, starring Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox, was loosely based on the animated robot series by the same name and has proven to be one of the most popular movies of all time. The movie's themes deal with the cosmic battle between good and evil, a battle where an allegedly good robot aliens dubbed Autobots are at war with allegedly bad robot aliens called Decepticons. The Autobots are in search of the original god force responsible for all of life called the Allspark. They team up with the American military and the human race to help them gain victory in a potentially end-of-the-world type scenario, which is likened to the Battle of Armageddon mentioned in the Book of Revelation. This is easily a hundred times cooler than Armageddon! Is it possible that there's far more to the picture than meets the eye in Transformers? Is it possible that Michael Bay has taken a page out of the Book of Revelation and inverted it or turned it inside out as the characters that are good are made evil and those that are made evil are made good in a run-up scenario to the Battle of Armageddon? In Michael Bay's earlier movie, Armageddon, we are told that it is based on the Battle of Armageddon mentioned in the Bible as the President of the United States in the movie refers to the Bible when he is speaking of the battle at hand as they are facing a massive asteroid. We are faced with the very gravest of challenges. The Bible calls this day Armageddon, the end of all things. And yet, for the first time in the history of the planet, a species has the technology to prevent its own extinction. There it is right there. For the first time in the history of the species, we have the technology to save ourselves. All right, that's the message. Twenty twelve, right? There's all this hype. Twenty twelve. It's a total scam. I've even heard some people say the the, the, the there's the Mayan calendar doesn't even really end on twenty December twelve, twenty twelve, twenty one, twenty twelve. So, uh, but again, here's a little, little propaganda. Calendar predicted it. Victims adhere to the Mayan calendar, which predicts the end of time to occur on the 21st of December of 2012. You won't believe this. I thought we'd have more time. The world as we know it will soon come to an end. It's starting. The Mayans knew about it. It's the end of the world, my friends. <laughs> it's the end of the world, my friends, is what he says. Okay? Now, here's uh 
these were, this is the end of the movie here where it's kind of dark, you can't see it, but they built these huge ships and they even call them arcs. And they had all these scenes where they brought in all these animals and everything. And here again, the governments of the world are banded together and they built these huge arcs and they saved mankind from the coming destruction. Now, does this have any, any, uh, any effect on people? Watch this. Now, Nostradamus and Hollywood predict apocalypse is around the corner. Well, since the release of the disaster movie 2012, alarmists have begun to prepare for the worst. Among them is a Russian inventor who's working on an armored capsule which he says would protect four occupants from just about every disaster. RT's Stacey Bivens has more. Meteors the size of skyscrapers raining down on the planet and California breaking away from the continental U.S. before plunging deep into the Pacific Ocean. These are just a couple of the doomsday scenarios played out in the film 2012. But for some, the movie is more than Hollywood science fiction. This is not just a flood of fantasy. It is physics, chemistry, and mathematics. So the 2012 follows from over the years past, and this is the answer of what to do. The flows he speaks of are the natural disasters such as earthquakes and tsunamis, which the Mayans predicted would trigger the beginning of the end of the world just three years from now. As for the what to do, well, it's hopping on board one of these, a self-containing rescue capsule called the A-2012. This, of course, is only a prototype, but according to Yevgeny, once it goes into production, the $92,000 pod would hold up to four people and would be virtually indestructible. Those inside would survive substantial natural disasters, terror attacks, and even the effects of the end of the world for roughly 40 days while on board. This armor is bulletproof. It cannot be destroyed by explosives or burned away. Nothing can happen to it. There's already a similar model in the U.S., but Russia's inventor says his is a more enhanced version as it can resurface from deep depths of water and float on lava. Wow. There you go. Better get one of those. Save up. Because the end of the world's coming. All right? So here's a, here's a clip from uh, uh, Walter Veith's new series called Rekindling the Reformation. Uh, it's an amazing series, and this is a little piece of, of real propaganda that... Uh, uh, the governments of the world have put out. Notice how many languages it's... Global catastrophe. The environment is everywhere. And our planet is in peril. We need to solve this problem. Or we all go under in the next five years. So we need some global propaganda. Let's look at some of it. These are all the nights. The scientists have made it quite clear. Climate change as a self-inflicted wound, if you like, can wipe out 
the very meager assets. We have a climate crisis that is a planetary emergency. We are so, so close to the red line that perhaps we may wake up tomorrow and find that there's nothing to save after all. We have reached a point where we have a, a real emergency. The message should be clear. Climate change must take its place along with those threats like conflict, poverty. Climate change is responsible for conflicts that can only happen in the future if we don't act as soon as possible. It's the only thing that I believe has the power to fundamentally end the march of civilization as we know it. We will have a catastrophe, add it to another catastrophe. Climate change means catastrophic environment weather, like wildfires and devastation. Rising sea level, rising food prices, to the spread of disease. If the future of the world depended on me, what would I do? The North Dakota ice cap is melting so fast. But what seems to me to be important is that some of the effects we are witnessing now are happening twice as fast as scientists were predicting just five years ago. A report issued earlier this year by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change concluded both that global temperatures are rising, that this is caused largely by human activities. And if you look at the Earth Assessment Report of the IPCC, we've assessed several stabilization scenarios. In 2010, there could already be as many as 50 million environmentally displaced persons due to climate change, desertification, Experts tell us that the situation underlying the crisis is not a temporary one. And it's getting more and more difficult every day. And there's no guarantee that human civilization can survive. The doomsday clock of climate change is ticking ever faster towards midnight. We're simply not reacting quickly enough. Do we need to move faster to answer the question, yes we do, because we have less time than we thought we had. So climate change is obviously going to have a major negative impact. The scale and the pace of environmental change at the beginning of the 21st century are a serious wake-up call to us as human beings on this planet. We know without a doubt that global warming is a reality and the question today is not is it happening and not is it bad but what are we going to do about it. We are all part of the problem of global warming. Let us all be part of the solution. The challenge you face is to prove to people that you are serious about adaptation the unavoidable meat production and consumption is hugely intensive in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. More than all cars, trucks and ships added together. Unless we change our food choices, nothing else matters because it is meat that is destroying most of our forests. It's meat that pollutes the waters. It is meat that is creating disease which leads to all our money being diverted to hospitals. So um, it's the first choice for anybody who wants to save the earth. The food we eat and how it's grown and the kind of food we eat uh, matters a lot. Everything comes 
uh, with an environmental price. Uh, beef production in particular. We consume far too much meat in this world. Because there's where the climate problem is, our meat consumption. Something that's harmful even for human health. I think we've seen enough. So then... Right, so on and on, we've heard this, all this talk about sustainability. And, and, but is this what we've been trained to live like? Right? Consumption, consumption. Oh, wait, no, that's the problem with that. We need to be sustained. And I have nothing against living sustainably and, and trying to come up with alternative forms of energy and all that. But this is what's driving the world into a one-world situation. You know, the, the polar ice caps have melted. This is the last little bit of it here. Yeah, this polar bear is the last one. You know, they say that, that, that in one winter, all that, all that stuff in, in Inconvenient Truth about the polar ice caps melting and everything, in one winter, that ice reconstituted. They had the coldest winter ever, and it reconstituted in one winter. Do scientists have come out and said, we were paid to doctor the evidence. It's not really, really happening. I mean, you're talking about trying to monitor something globally, something science can't even comprehend. Here's a clip from this concert that Scott was talking about, uh, this holographic concert that played simultaneously around the world. And, and this is how you get the youth involved. You bring them to a rock concert, right? I'm so close to today here to support us. He's the author of The An Inconvenient Truth and the former Vice President of the United States. Let me introduce to you, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Albor. Thank you. Hello. I'm Al Gore. What an amazing world we live in. I love that I can stand here on this stage in Tokyo and speak to you in holographic form. It is astounding that in just these recent few decades, 
We have seen the invention of technologies that enable us to connect and instantly communicate our ideas and intentions and feelings with people on the other side of the globe. Because of the communication channels and technologies that are now available to us, this venue at this very moment is connected to the entire world. You are communicating right now to well over two billion people, including all the live Earth audiences in Sydney, Shanghai, Johannesburg, Hamburg, London, Rio de Janeiro, and New York. And the broadcast audience watching on television and over the internet in more than 120 countries. The human race is also connected by the climate crisis. It is a global problem that transcends boundaries, languages, and culture. The climate crisis has an impact on everyone, everywhere on Earth. If we look at the Earth from space, it looks like a blue ball coated with a very thin layer of lacquer. All right, blah, blah, blah. We know what he's saying there. He's just trying to get us to, to jump on board, right? The Earth Charter as a declaration of fundamental principles for building a just and sustainable and peaceful global society for the 21st century, created by a global society endorsed by thousands of organizations and institutions. The Charter is not only a call to action, but a motivating force inspiring the change the world over. This is the wizard behind the, the curtain here. Al Gore is kind of the front man. This guy, Maurice Strong, um, he was the Secretary General of the historic United Nations UNSED Earth Conference in Rio de Janeiro. The real goal of the Earth Charter is that it will become like the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is kind of hard for me to read up there. He says that um, he hinted at the overtly pagan agenda fe uh, feature of the Earth Charter when he opened the address at the Rio conference saying this, it is the responsibility of each human being today to choose between the forces of darkness and the force of light. Now note, Alice A. Bailey and Madame Blavatsky, Blavatsky both uh, um, use this terminology in their writings. Force of darkness uh, is a term they use to adhere to this outdated Judeo-Christian faith, those who continue along their separative paths of a one true God. The force of light, Lucifer, is their view. In their view is the inclusive New Age doctrine of pagan pantheistic New Age religion. In the New Age of Aquarius, there will be no room for the force of darkness. And then he, he goes on to say in his, in his intro, we must therefore transform our attitudes and adopt a renewed respect for the superior laws of divine nature. So elevating nature above that of man. In 1982, an English painter named Benjamin Krem took out full-page ads in newspapers around the world declaring the Christ is now here. For more than 20 years now, Krem has traveled the world telling all nations that the Christ, whom he calls Maitreya, is about to appear. Maitreya is standing by, ready to come into the world at any moment. We caught up with Mr. Krem in August of 2006 as he had just come from speaking to an independent group at the United Nations. He had this to say to America. 
It's the, the duty of the American people to respond to Maitreya and to accept their destiny. It was on May 14, 1982, that Krem held a press conference to announce that the Christ, Maitreya, was ready to emerge. May 14th was also the date of the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. With all the bloodshed and conflict happening in the Middle East, we asked Krem what he thought it might take to bring peace to the region. I've always said it will take Maitreya to, to solve it. Prophecy teachers warn that the current roadmap to peace, followed by President Bush, is really a roadmap to Armageddon. Meanwhile, Krem says the solution is the universal Christ, which he claims is awaited by all religions. 2,600 years ago, Gautama Buddha made a prophecy it's in one of the sutras. Um, at this time, would come into the world another great teacher, a Buddha like himself, by name Maitreya, who by dint of his extraordinary spiritual stature would, would galvanize and inspire humanity to create a brilliant golden civilization, based, as he put it, on righteousness and truth. Maitreya is the name of Maitreya Putta. All the, all the religions are awaiting him. The Muslims are awaiting a teacher they call, or a prophet they call the Imam Mahdi. The Hindus are awaiting the return of Krishna or Kalkiyatata. Buddhists are awaiting Maitreya Putta. He is in fact the world teacher for this age, the age of Aquarius, which is beginning now. Okay, so this guy is the John the Baptist of the New Age Christ. He's been heralding the coming of, of this guy, uh, Maitreya, and, and you see what's happening here in the world. There's, there's a crisis is going to take place. Something's going to happen. And when Satan comes as this false Christ, people are going to be deceived to think that, man, this is the solution to bring about this golden age of humanity where we all get together and we live in this one world situation. But we know the truth. There's only one truth. Amen. It's get on the ark. And we're all called to be Noah and to herald this message because the only solution to the coming crisis, the flood that is about to come on the earth, is Jesus Christ. So I encourage each of you to, man, weep between the porch and the altar. Let's plead with the Lord to reveal to us His character in our own lives so that we can uplift Christ in our own lives and all men will be drawn to us. Amen? Amen. I'm sorry for keeping you guys uh, a little longer, but uh, the door of probation is about to close and we want to be inside the ark. So, amen. Oh, yeah, you know what? Let me just say a quick word of prayer before you go. Huh? Yeah, and come by our booth and say hi. All right. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much for, um, for giving us a road map for these end times, Lord. May we take to heart the 
urgency of the time. Because there is no time left. Noah built the ark for 120 years, and here it's been 166 years since you've entered the most holy place. Lord, we know that we are on borrowed time. Please come into our hearts and renew us and strengthen us, create in us a new character, a character that is molded after your own so that your name can be vindicated. May you be glorified. This message was produced by GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. GYC seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians in contemporary contexts. To download or purchase other resources like this, or if you have been blessed by GYC and would like to donate, visit gycweb.org or email info at gycweb.org. You could also reach us via mail at P.O. Box 3786 Ann Arbor, Michigan 48106. This recording is licensed under Creative Commons. This means you can copy and share it with anyone you like. Please attribute this recording to GYC wherever you reuse it. And keep in mind that resale and alteration are strictly prohibited.